Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. I'm Jeff Stewart, and I'm your host, and I'm so grateful to be with all of you here. And thank you so much for all the great support and comments that you make about the Illuminate podcast and for sharing it with other people. And if you are finding this information helpful, please continue to pass it on to other people. And also, drop by iTunes and leave a review and give us a rating. That makes such a big difference when people are trying to find good information. We've got some phenomenal experts and some others that have come on this podcast to share their stories and resources, and we want to make sure as many people as possible can find this life-changing information. This week, I'm excited to bring back Dr. Carmel White, who wrote a wonderful book with her co-author, Natalie Milne, called Love and Betrayal. And of course, this book is all about betrayal trauma, and specifically, it, it goes over the 14 different interviews that they did with women who have been betrayed by a loved one's pornography use, by their husband specifically. And in this book, there is just so much rich detail because they really get into the stories and the, the examples and the details of these women's lives and what it's really like for them. And so if you ever want to understand what it's like to be betrayed, this is probably one of the best resources I've seen out there. And it's written for an audience that's, you know, for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but it doesn't really matter. If you are any woman who has been betrayed by pornography addiction, then you absolutely will relate to what is being shared. In this week's episode, we specifically are going to talk about the impact on spirituality. This is such a, a layered and complex issue and such a personal issue for women and spirituality, of course, for all of us is such a nuanced and personal thing. But when you're dealing with an addiction or something that's such a deep betrayal that for many of these women was completely unknown and they discovered it or it was brought to light, this is often very confusing when it comes to spirituality. It brings up so many questions about, you know, did God know or how come God put me in this position and questioning their own ability to receive answers, their own sanity and all kinds of other things. And so Dr. White and I have a great conversation about the impact on spirituality. If you are struggling with betrayal trauma and you're dealing with this, hopefully what is being shared here will help validate you and strengthen you and let you know that you're not alone and you're certainly not crazy. And if you are a loved one or a church leader who is supporting someone who's going through betrayal trauma, hopefully this will give you a deeper understanding of how to best support them so that you don't inadvertently say things that are unhelpful or that might even bypass some of the sensitivity that they need from you. Sometimes we offer quick solutions and quick spiritual answers to more alleviate our own anxiety than actually stay with them in their suffering. I hope that this episode can be a great resource to everyone who's listening. So without further ado, I'm going to jump right into my interview with Dr. Carmel White. Well, welcome back to the Illuminate podcast. Thank you again, Dr. White, for spending some more time with us today and uh, sharing more of your research and your insights from your book, Love and Betrayal. Thank you for having me back. I'm 
I'm enjoying talking to you about it. Yeah. So we're going to tackle a different topic today. Uh, last time we talked about um, the four different purposes of the book, and we spent a lot of time talking about uncertainty, and that certainly plays into this next topic, but specifically around the loss of spiritual grounding. And, you know, as a therapist who works with a lot of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, here in Utah, um, but I also work with a lot of other clients who aren't affiliated with that church or don't even necessarily have a religious affiliation, but still feel the impact of some of these cosmic questions, right? The existential angst of, you know, is somebody in charge or what does it all mean? And spirituality yeah. is really about organizing how we, right, like the things that are bigger than us and, and the purposes right. and, and the guidance and just sort of like the energy around us and there's just so much of that that gets twisted in a knot or just gets completely vaporized when uh, you discover a secret life. And so, yeah. so yeah, so I want to I wanna dive into really what is spiritual grounding. Um, I'd like to just kind of let you start set this up and let us know why you guys explored this, um, what you found. And let's just let's just kind of take it from there if you're okay with that. Sure. So really, there are kind of two areas that I think are affected by, by spirituality. And the first one is your own personal spirituality, your spiritual practices of praying and having faith in God, um, the own personal part that's that's not public. And then there's the public part, which is where you go to church and how you worship and who you interface at church. And I think it really inter impacts both of those uh, in very dramatic ways. I'd like to talk, first of all, about the more private part. Um, I think one very common theme that women have is that they lose faith in God for a period of time. Some women, it's a short period. Some women, it's years. Um, and what the source of losing faith in God is multifaceted. Um, one woman we interviewed was upset at God because he made man, men, he created them, and he created them this way. Um, that was really frustrating for her that you know, God, who could see this all, saw this as a potential problem, and he still went ahead with it. That really, really was difficult for her to kind of come to grips with. I think a lot of times people feel that God answers their prayers or that God will guide them through certain experiences. And when that doesn't happen in a way that we expect, it causes us to need to step back and to think, why? Why didn't he help with that? Um, for a lot of women, they pray to know if this is the right person to marry. And they feel like they got an answer that, yes, that's the right person for you to marry. They felt like God told them that that was the right person, the right way to go. And then they find out about this and they're like, God knew about this. Why did he do this to me? Um, why didn't he warn me? Why didn't he let me know this was going to be a problem? Um, 
So it's kind of tied into that betrayal trauma. They feel betrayed by their husband, but they also feel a bit betrayed by God. Why didn't God warn me? Um, Why didn't God tell me? So that's a really big issue for a lot of women for a very long time. And that's very, a a very private um, experience. Um, So this is what, what um, uh, one woman told us. She she believed in the Holy ghost. And she said, "I I believe that the Holy ghost does tell us the truth of all things. But once I realized that I had believed lies for years, I started wondering if something was wrong with me. I mean, how could I have not known what my husband was doing, what he was keeping from me? My conclusion was that I must be unable to recognize the Holy Ghost. Um, So, you know, as part of the Godhead, the Holy Ghost is supposed to warn us. And she started to question, can I not feel that? That's a very personal, um, very personal feeling, I guess. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. Why did God do this to me? And there are no easy answers with that question. Um, And it does take time for women to figure that out. Not all women question God. um, And eventually women start to realize God is a source of strength. He's the only one I can trust um, that, that, um, He's always going to love me no matter what, that he's going to love me no matter how I look. Um, So women do get to the point where they can kind of make a connection again with God. But it is very painful for, for a long time. And I think it contributes for a very spiritual woman to a sense of their betrayal trauma um, because they feel like, not only has their husband betrayed them, but that as a part of that, God betrayed them. Yeah, what a confusing thing because, you know, we sort of don't question, especially, you know, for most people when they're younger, that God just has our back. And you hear, you know, you hear stories in primary and growing up in in, in the church where, you know, God warns and directs and prevents and all these kinds of things. And so... In this one area that seems to be the most important area ever, um, a lot of women are like, "How could he let this happen?" Yeah. And so that role of protector and and you know we sing hymns about it, right? That mm-hmm. he holds us in his hands and he guides and protects us and warns and all these things, and that can be so confusing. And yeah, it's very confusing. I you know, and I I agree with you. I see this a lot of times in my practice as well. That you know, for, for a lot of these, for most of the women that I talk to, their husband is both a source of comfort and a source of pain. And exactly. it's so confusing because everything yeah. in them instinctively wants to turn to him when they're hurting, but they turn to him and they recoil at the same time because he's such a threat. And and they have that same experience with God. And so they feel utterly alone. Yes. Like where are yeah. they supposed to turn for comfort? If right. these two if these two relationships, which are primary attachment relationships, are totally threatening now. I'm yeah. totally alone. Right. And I I really agree with what with what you just said about women turning to their husbands. Um, one very interesting thing that I have concluded after doing these interviews, a lot of times women would tell us when they found out about their husband's pornography use, they were like, "What? 
he's the spiritual one. He's the one that says his prayers every day and that reads his scriptures. He's more spiritual than I am. What's with that? <laughs> right, right. And I think for a lot of men, that has been the way they've coped since they were very young. Absolutely. Their bishops have said, read uh, the scriptures and pray as a way to help you with temptation. And so that's become a very big habit for them as a way of coping with, with their situation. But it's very confusing for a woman. Very confusing. Um, and, and a lot of women feel guilty that they feel this way. Yeah. Yes, right? they do. We're not supposed to be and, mad at God. Right. But I think it's very normative. Yes. And I think you need to find somebody that's okay listening to you say that. Um, and and for you to also tell yourself that you won't be in the same place five years from now. Right. You'll have different feelings about God. Um the other internal kind of private source of spiritual problems comes uh, as you think about the home. For many people, the home is a sacred space. It's a space that they have created by putting pictures on the walls or by making sure certain things happen, like avoiding fighting, where they feel their spiritual um, healing there, that they can feel God's presence there. And for most women, when they find out their husband is using pornography at their home, and like this is their temple, their sacred space, that's a huge betrayal. This is my space, and you're bringing that into my space that I've tried to create. Like it's such a violation. Mm-hmm. It's a very big violation of, uh, uh, it's like a personal space violation. Um, and many women will ask their husbands, please just don't look at it at home. If you need to look at it, go somewhere else to look at it. But that is often not followed. And um, that's a real source of pain for women, especially if their children are around when when their husband is looking at pornography. That's, that's a real... Um, difficult thing for a woman. Well, and yeah, and that, that's such a, that's such a big a common thing with a lot of people who have addictions is the compartmentalization that they believe, well, I'm looking at it in this one space. So I'm in the bathroom or I'm in this, and in this bedroom and I'm by myself and the kids aren't around and my, you know, it's, it's one isolated to one area, but for, for a woman who's made her home a sacred space, the whole house feels contaminated. It feels like the right. whole thing's been ruined now. It's not just, so even when he leaves for the day or is out of the home, the the memories persist, the sense that this right. place has been, that the purity of this environment has now been violated is just more than they can take. Right, exactly. That is the exact, exact things we heard from women, that it was, it was so very painful when they would use it at home. The other thing that is, is more private is that certain religious practices can be healing for women going to church sometimes and feeling the spirit there and feeling like they're being taught personally there, you know, for their own private spiritual development. It, that can be a very comforting feeling. And for members of the church going to the temple, that can be a really a place where people go when they want to know answers to difficult questions or when they want to feel peace for a problem that's persistent. And all of a sudden, 
those places that have been locations where they have had great spiritual feelings and guidance often become very painful places for them to go because they're they have to think about what their husband's addiction means now in light of what these spiritual places now mean in light of their husband's addiction so as they're talking about righteous priesthood holders at church you know while that's a kind of a public thing that they're talking about that becomes a very private, internal, righteous priesthood holders. How long has he been pretending that? How long has he um, hidden this? Who else is he hiding it from? Is he hiding it from from actual priesthood leaders? Um, eternal families. Well, what does that mean for my family? So they're in a they're in a public space, but a lot of what's happening in that public space is they're hearing things that they have to sort through now that are so painful. What do I have an eternal family? Do I have um, a husband that can be faithful and loyal when I need him? And the same is true for, for going to the temple. Um, some of the experiences there, especially sealings where couples are sealed together for eternity. Those are really painful for women. And I know from my perspective, um, it was so painful to go to some of those places. I did a lot of crying at others' weddings. And I think people didn't understand while I was crying. They came up afterwards with like, oh, I was so touched by that too. And it's like, I'm not touched by it. I'm hurt by I'm it. I'm tortured. And, yeah. Yeah. And you don't always, you can't say that to people, you know, it's, painful for me to be here at, at church or at the temple because of all these things I have to do. Right, which are supposed to be peaceful, uplifting places, but they can be torture chambers when, you know, you're having to wrestle with meaning and like again, like the the relationship with God, the relationship with your with your spouse, source of comfort, source of pain. They're always they're always and I use that word very deliberately it's always on dealing with that tension, that tug and pull uh, for months and sometimes years. Right. It's right. it's not something and that just resolves quickly. I, I totally agree. And I think another compounding factor, if you want to look at going someplace for comfort, is oftentimes people have been trained to go to talk to the bishop for comfort. He's going to guide you. He's going to help you through this trial. Um. And this is more part of the public, but oftentimes he becomes a source of pain for women on top of that too. And they feel betrayed by ecclesiastical leaders as well as by God and their husband. And they really feel like they don't have a place to turn. Yeah. And that can be from things that are said or things that are not said. And yeah. And and it can be, it can be, um, completely the bishop's behavior can be completely innocuous for many people but within the heightened state of emotional distress that a woman is in it can be things can be interpreted very painful by them yeah absolutely yeah i mean it's 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 interesting i i, I talked with a woman recently um who said that she went to meet with her bishop 
with her husband, and the bishop asked something, again, very innocuous. I think he said something like, he he turned to the husband and, and was trying to understand the scope of the addiction and asked him, he says, well, have you guys been praying together as a couple? And what she heard was, well, the answer was no, by the way, because she didn't mm-hmm. feel safe, <laughs> right? Yeah, being being right. next to him praying. But what she heard was, because you're not praying with him as a couple, you're contributing to his addiction and you're making things right. worse. And she walked out of there feeling so blamed. And so I, I say this not not obviously criticizing the bishop. He had no idea. Not criticizing her, but just showing that this is how loaded this is. Right. And please be right, just be be gentle on yourself and each other because these these are tapping into some very delicate, fragile feelings about how things are supposed to go, how things happen, what does it all mean? And right. it's 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 just very raw. Right. It that raw is a really good word for it. And I don't think it's as raw for the husband as it is for the wife, which is a source of kind of pain for the woman. It's yeah. like, why does this not bother him? And it's killing me. And 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 probably they look at the bishop's reaction too and think, why isn't he more troubled by this? Um, so those are the kind of private things that women go through uh, spiritually. Um, and then there's more public things uh, or more public interface. You mentioned um, ecclesiastical leaders, their bishops, going to see their bishops. Um, that is a re- relationship that is really fraught. And many women that we interviewed had just terrible things about um, their experience there. Um, And I can list some of those negative experiences, and maybe as a therapist you can counter those. One of the first things I think bishops frequently will do, um, and it may be that the comment is innocuous, like the example you just shared, maybe it is more blaming, is that they'll say things to the wife like, well, if you would just get fixed up every day, or if you would just have sex more often, or in this case, if you would just pray with him, this will all, you know, this will be a way of resolving it, which then does blame the person rather than the woman, rather than the person where the blame should be. And that is painful for women. Oh, it is. And yeah, absolutely. And I think that this is a fundamental this is a very common thing that I hear as well in my office. Um, and I, I think that a lot of bishops feel, you know, it's funny, we put a lot of uh, we put a lot of pressure and expectations on bishops to somehow be magical healers. <laughs> you know we 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 you know the I've been a bishop, and it's it's a lot of it's it's a lot of pressure. People expect miracles out of bishops. And so a lot of the times, I yeah. think bishops, um, play into that a little bit. They feel pressure to somehow fix it or resolve it. And when you're faced with something as chronic and as and as difficult as an addiction, I, I've seen a lot of bishops kind of take the bait and um, say things to try and basically just uh, figure out who's to blame for this. Right. And so there's there's a tendency to want to just get resolution to pick out sort of the bad guy. And unfortunately, that often gets blamed on the wife. Right. That's the yeah. that's the biggest tragedy. I'm like, okay, Bishop, if you're gonna look for a bad guy, 
if you have to do that, then put the accountability on on him. He can take yeah, right. it, and he needs to be accountable anyway. So I think, you know, when I'm talking with bishops on the phone or trying to coordinate with them, counsel with them, I, I, I say this till I'm blue in the face that, you know, the only response for a woman is the question of what do you need? How can I, how can I help you? And treat them like somebody's just died. You're not going to go into, into kind of, uh, you know, FBI mode and figure out who really caused this whole thing. Because in many cases, you'll end up back at that guy's childhood. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's so complicated yeah. that to pull her into this, when in many cases she had nothing, she has nothing to do with it and, and it started long before she was ever in the picture. Right. Bishops can do so much to just take that pressure off of her because she's already blaming herself anyway. Right. That that he has to be very careful to not send any message and in some ways go over the top to make sure that she knows this is not her fault. So even to use phrases like, it's not your fault, you're not crazy, you didn't do this, it wouldn't have mattered yeah. what, he, what you did, he still had this yeah. problem. Those kinds of phrases yeah. are so important for her to hear because what is her responsibility is her healing. And so she does have a job to do, but it's her healing. It's not to stop right. his addiction. Right. So I, I think bishops, you know, they're they're power they feel powerless. I understand it. I do too. A lot of the times I'm sitting with people, it's like, wow, we how are we gonna stop this thing? But we have to kind of get our heads about us and go, okay, this is a long-term problem. It's his responsibility and her responsibility is to heal. And I'm gonna do everything overtly that I can to release her from any pressure to feel like she has to be in charge or be blamed for it. Yeah. But one thing I think women can do in the in these kinds of situations is be more of an advocate for themselves totally and and say i need to have counseling i need to have support i need um to have a woman that i another woman that i can trust and talk to um i love that so i i think i think that's a really important thing but, but it's really hard because you're feeling vulnerable already. Yeah. You don't feel you don't feel like you have any power um, at that time, but you really need to be an advocate for yourself that this is what I need to help myself. Um, yeah. Nobody yeah. else is gonna do it. Nobody else. I've never um, met a husband. I've never honestly, in 20 years of doing this, I've never met a husband who came in advocating for his wife to get help. Honestly, yeah. like they're so wrapped up in their own shame and they're yeah. just so they're just so consumed with the struggle and their own and her own reactions and everything that they're not thinking of that. So she needs yeah. to do that. I agree with you. I love that. And I think the other th advice I would give women as they're thinking about going in to see to the bishop is to say um I realize I might have betrayal trauma, which will look um, will look to others like I'm a little bit a little bit unhinged at this point. <laughs> totally, that, that I'm highly um, distressed about this. That I'm crying. That I'm you know set off by certain things. I think if women can kind of get get their their minds around. I can show him or tell him what my emotions are doing to me right now. You know, I am suffering and 
I'm, I, I might not look like you want me to look or like I'll look in 10 years. Um, but this is where I am right now. Uh, I, I love that. that. I love what you're saying. I mean, in so many words, you're, you're saying, ladies, you have got to advocate for yourself and not just go in there passively hoping he'll say the right thing. Right. Right. Like you right. can go in there and direct this conversation and ask right. for resources and educate him and, and, and share resources and let him know what you need and let him respond to that. Right. Right. That's, and that's so important. But at the same time, while you and I can say that's important, I also know how difficult that is to do when you've been hurt so badly. Um, that it, it, it's a hard thing to do, but I, I think if you can do it, you'll feel very much empowered and um, a good way, a good direction for that relationship with the bishop um, to go. Yeah. It's, I it's, yeah. The other, yeah. I, I, it's, it's a hard thing. Um, the other thing I think that you said, bishops should not be trying to do therapy. Um, they should be referring this problem for both the man and his wife to a a qualified therapist. Yep. Um, That he, he, I think the thing that's also hard for women is that the bishop can deal out justice and mercy. And a lot of feel women feel like he's too heavy on the mercy side. Um, I've heard from these interviews, women say bishops are, you know, enabling, you know, if, do they really understand he could be lying to you as well as he's lying and lying to himself. Um, and some one woman said she heard the priesthood called a cult of enablers. You know that's the mercy of our of our beliefs coming through. And women often want the justice at that time. And it's it's a difficult balance between that mercy and justice. And I think if women can understand that. First of all, bishops probably don't understand about addictions. And second of all, that he might be more inclined to mercy than to justice. That also can help you kind of reframe what his actions are about. Um, even though he, the Lord wants both mercy and justice. That's right. And I think it's also important for women to know that they are empowered to set boundaries and limits in their own lives that will give them that safety and that, which is what justice provides, right. that they don't have to outsource that to a bishop. Right. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Um, that's a therapist way of putting it. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> it's the only way I know how to talk. My poor children. <laughs> but, um, make you feel. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my kids think I say every day, all the day. They're just yeah, like, yeah. how does that make you feel? Um, <laughs> but that's that's a great point. I, I think this justice and mercy thing is a real struggle for a lot of women because they do feel, they have moments where they feel mercy. They see their husbands crying or breaking down, or they do see some sincere efforts and they want to be merciful, but, they, but the, the weight of that justice of how unfair this feels and how scary it is, and wanting there to be real change keeps him caught in that dilemma of how to do that. So a bishop, I mean, I'm not, we're not here to tell bishops what to do, but 
but we certainly can provide some insight from the lives of these women, which is they they really do benefit from the bishop understanding that he is going to administer both of those and yeah. and to make sure that there's that there's a, a an open and accountable discussion to her about what his intentions are and how he's handling this because otherwise she's it's likely she's going to misread it right exactly she's not going to know his intentions and i've seen bishops be very transparent with women um, in a great way about what their process is with their husbands. And, and I've seen some bishops that are very closed door about it and say, it's none of your business. You don't get to know. It's between me and him. And I think that's a mistake. I, I think yeah. that I think that that the bishops letting the wife in on that is uh, is really important for her healing so that she doesn't obsess about it, so she doesn't feel more violated and betrayed by the very right. people who are trying to help her. Right, because that's what happens when he keeps it secret. She's yeah. like, there's one more person that's part of this secrecy. Yeah. That, you know, if we could just shout it, oh, things would be better. Yeah. It, the other problem with, with priesthood leaders is that there's such variability um, across. You know, there's not a cookie-cutter bishop or a cookie-cutter response. And so one bishop may act this way, and you may have heard of another bishop acting another way. And, right. That right. can also be disconcerting for women. Oh yeah, one you know somebody gets the book thrown at them, and another person you know has a slap on the wrist or nothing, and that's so invalidating for a lot of women. Right. Yeah, and that's but that's a part of how the church that we belong to is set up. Yeah. That it's it's variable there. It is. So. It really is. But again, I I always tell women, look. You, you know, you don't have to, a lot of women are counting on the bishop to be the only one who holds their husband accountable. And no, like he should be holding himself accountable first and foremost, the, yeah. the individual who's struggling with the addiction. But she absolutely can create accountability for her own safety. Um, and a lot of women will take their cues from the bishop and it's like, oh, the bishop didn't do anything. So I guess I shouldn't have any boundaries. Nope. Right. Not true. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's why Sarah's story in the book that we talked about the last time we visited um, is so powerful. Is she was really accountable, and she was armed with what she wanted him to do, um, and she she was very set on this is the way it's going to go. That doesn't mean because she was armed that it was easy for her. But she did hold him accountable, accountable right from day one. And the reason that she did that is that she had been reading some of this material to help a friend or another re relative. And so she was primed. The pump was already primed. Oh, I love it. Ready. Yeah, it was really, really good for her. Um, the last thing I would say about spirituality, kind of like in our public worship, is... Um, we have blessings and men perform um, ordinances for their children that they may or may not be able to perform once pornography has become part of the equation. Right. Those also take on additional meaning. You know, some women never ask their husbands for, for a blessing. Um, uh, and how do they handle when the children act? There's just lots of layers there of things that, women can be hurt over, um, and that bishops have to navigate. So, yeah. And I don't know that there's any easy answers for that because it is such a public thing, right? It's, yeah. you know, I mean, I've, 
I've seen people do things like maybe get permission to do a private baby blessing at their house. And, you know, I've seen that there's sometimes sensitive ways to work around that to help depending on what stage of recovery they're in and kind of how fragile things are. But um, it is a very, there, there are a lot of public elements to our worship and spirituality that uh, slam head on into this issue. And, um, yeah, even a woman constantly going to the temple by herself can right. be a red for, for the situation. So it, it, it's not easy. I think, I think the thing that I have learned from these women and from my own thoughts is there are really two things here. The first one is recovery from an addiction. And the second one is spiritual healing and fortifying. And the bishop is qualified to do the latter, but not the former. And um, the former is going to take quite a while. Um, And you just have to find a way to balance, you know, those two roles that the bishop typically is, is expected to play in in people's lives, and he he doesn't know about addiction uh, most of the time. He's not a therapist like you, or yeah, right. like alcoholic sister like my bishop. Um, so, uh, have you have you found in your research with these women, and uh, and just maybe throughout your life as you talk to different women, that if that first area of the addiction recovery is accounted for, that there's support in place and resources, and and that there's an active effort being made on that front. Do you find that that takes some of the pressure off of some of the spiritual dilemmas and struggles and anxieties that that are, you know, part of that second half? Well, it would make sense what you said would happen, but I've not ever met anyone who approaches it that way right at the beginning because I don't think oftentimes they think, oh, this is an addiction and it's a disease and we need to handle that before we start thinking about the spiritual stuff. We first go to, this is a spiritual issue. This is a morality issue. You need to go and repent. Um, and so I have not ever talked to a woman where that has happened. Have you? No, I, I was just curious if you'd seen that because for me, it's always no. been mixed. And, yeah. and I agree with you that it's always usually the spiritual stuff is first, which is... Again, the questions about how could God let this happen, my own spiritual compass, my own ability to receive answers. Am I just totally up, a, you know, up the creek? Am I just, you know, there's just a lot of questions about, um, there's just a lot of questions about the bigger, what does it all mean? And those come yeah. first. Yes. Those come first. And then, yeah, I agree. They, they you then sort out the addiction and you get more education and, and it starts to thin out a little bit and you can kind of see, keep them separate. But yeah. um, that's why I think it's so critical to be validating and supportive and not rush to quick answers or not shame a woman for having these spiritual crises and questions as if she's lost her faith. Right. Um, yeah. I, I think that um, most women won't hear this podcast right when they find out. And so I think most women kind of come to this, uh, the spirituality piece already kind of a step behind. Um, yeah. In the fact that they haven't really thought through it that way. Um, and it can take years 
to think through some of these issues. Um, that's the benefit of reading and hearing other women's stories is that you know, oh, this is a really smart move. Why didn't I think of that? Yeah, yeah, um, so true. So true. Well, and, and one thing that I, I reassure so many of the women I talk to when they're having these faith crises and these struggles about God and, and their own spirituality and what does it all mean and do I stay in the church, do I leave the church, do I trust my bishop, do I not? I, I just I, I believe this very strongly. This is from my own my own faith, is that the God I know can take it. I know he can take it. He can handle Yeah. He can handle your questions, he can handle your fear, he can handle your anger. Um yeah. I mean, I'm a parent and, and, you know, my kids, I'm sure have hated me many days and I can take it. And if I can take it, he can take it. So there's yeah. room, there's room for that. And don't feel like you're um, going to be cast off or unforgiven or that you've committed the the worst, you know, spiritual crime. It's not true. Yeah, it's not. And um, it may take, it may take longer than a couple months to figure yeah. relationship out with God. Yes. Yes. It's, you know, as we talked about, it's a total reworking of your identity. And so when somebody reworks their identity, they have to rework all of the relationships that they have with others, including God. Oh, I love that. That's, that's a great final point. Let's just stop there that. Yeah, I love that. And so there's, there has to be that, that process and it's okay. It's okay Mm -hmm. because it did change. Something changed. And it will take time. Yep, yep. Yeah. So, um, in the last last uh, episode when we when we talked, um, you know, we we talked about your book, Love and Betrayal. And can you tell our listeners where they can find this book and the uh, and other resources you've created or other resources that might help them? Um, if you go to Amazon.com, just like you can find most anything, um, Love and Betrayal is there. Um, you might want to put in my name, Carmel Parker White. Um, that will help you find it. There are a couple of other love and betrayal books that um, that we found after we had named ours. Um, so that's there to help you. Also, the women throughout the book talk about resources they have used and that they have found to be helpful to them, such as um, 12-step programs for wives or um counselors that have a specific focus on sexual addictions, all of those things can be very helpful for women. Um, a trust, a person that you trust to share your emotions with can be vital, um, to a woman's recovery. Um, somebody that, that will allow them that will allow you, I'll speak directly to you, that will allow you to sit where you are in your pain and in your hurt and in your anger and in your uncertainty and just let you be there. So that's probably the best resource um, you can hope to have as you go through this whole process. Yeah, that's the emotional first aid. That's the stabilizing and breaking you out of isolation. That, uh, yeah. You know, as it's rescue breathing, and it's critical. Yeah, yep. Yeah, wonderful. But not, not everybody's skilled at doing it. I know, I know, and so, 
Well, that's wonderful. Um, thank you again, Dr. White, for again for your research, for your um, just tireless efforts in trying to get this information out to women, and and the courage of these women as well that have shared their stories. Yes. Thank that's you for true. for spending time uh, with all of us today. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity, and I would I would second what you said. These women really put themselves out on a limb to tell us their very personal stories. And we are so grateful to them. I want to thank Dr. White for spending time with us and giving us so much great information. You can find her book that she, again, she co-authored with Natalie Milne called Love and Betrayal. You can find it on Amazon. I also have a link.